In the midst of this global crisis, the voices for justice are revealing what really matters. It is time for Planetary Makeover. Here we feature solutions and modern miracles in documentary videos that offer hope for our future and remind us all of our spiritual source. Long ago it was forecast that at this time in history, extraordinary teachers, including the world teacher, would emerge to help us as we build a world that works for everyone. Now, here's your host of Planetary Makeover, Mr. David Minot. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Planetary Makeover. If you were with us two weeks ago on Martin Luther King Day, we had part one of Dick Larson's interview with, excuse me, with McNair Ezard. I get choked up just thinking about it um, on the subject of death and dying, which might seem morbid, but actually it's not. And Mick Ezard and... Uh, and Dick had explained that in the last episode, and they're going to explain it further in this one, better than I can. So let me not butcher um, anybody's name here either, since, of course, this is McNair, Ezard, and this is, is about approximately the same length, about 27 minutes, and they will talk about in depth and in detail, as much as one can about death in 27 minutes, our society's attitude towards it, the spiritual hierarchy's position on it, some of the broader perspectives and consequences of the attitude that the world holds today towards the subject of death, and how that will be transformed in the coming years into something much more positive and upbeat. So how does that sound? I know it's a relief to me. I hope it's a relief to you, too. I'm just going to check my notes here and make sure I haven't left anything out. Yes, um, something else I had made note of, too, that I didn't want to forget was Jiddu Krishnamurti, who I'm sure a lot of you have heard of, Krishnamurti, had talked about this as well. But he was talking about it in a broader day-by-day context in the sense of, dying to the past in every moment. So when he spoke of death, as he said, he wasn't talking about being old and diseased and unconscious and in a hospital. He was talking about being vibrant and alive and seeing each moment afresh with new eyes, without prejudice, without preconceived notions that veiled your perception of the truth. And this is something that Dick and and McNair are going to touch upon once again in part two. And make sure there's nothing else about them that I wanted to say that I didn't say last week. Well, more in the broader sense, what we say every week is that we're not here to convince you of anything. 
That's your job. We're just here to present the material and hope that you'll take it with an open, quiet, calm, observant mind, which of course we all think is easy, right? And in a sense, we all do it from time to time. For instance, when you're watching a movie, your mind is is at rest. It's really rather calm. If only we could look at all of life that way, like a movie that we're enjoying. But instead, a truly open mind is one of the rarest things on the planet, yours truly included. What we're looking to do in this case is to get you to view these new concepts without fear, without preconceived notions, which is really hard to do because we all run by what is introduced to us, what we already know. And if it agrees, fine. If it doesn't, we kick it out. A lot of times we don't even think to ask, what did you mean by that? Or I don't have a context for that. Could you go into that a little further? No, we just, we just shut it out because change makes us uncomfortable. And new truths, new concepts, new ideas could force us to change some of our treasured beliefs and ways of living. This requires work. And a lot of us, including myself, can be lazy. We don't want to do the work that incorporating new ideas, new concepts, new philosophies, new ways of living entails. That's a lot of work. But the dividend is well worth it. The trade-off is there. We just need to convince yourself of that because... I cannot. I can try and be persuasive, but that's about it. So the other major point that we make in every show, and if you've seen us before, you've heard this before, is that mankind has help at this time of an extraordinary kind. That the the, mm, elder brothers of humanity if I can put it that way, also known as the Masters of Wisdom, the Lords of Compassion, the Spiritual Hierarchy, and many other names, are re-entering the world after a 98,000-year absence. If you wonder why they've been gone so long, it's because mankind at the time told them to take a hike. We had developed a fascination with the dark side, so to speak, not to steal Darth Vader's thunder, but apparently he's been around a long time. And when we did that, as was our free will to do, we told the masters to go away. Luckily, they didn't go far. They went to all the remote spots of the world, the Urals, the Cascades, the Himalayas, the Rockies, uh, the Gobi Desert, the Mojave, where they continue to influence humanity and direct us without interfering with our free will from behind the scenes of everyday life. A lot of their information came to the most advanced members of the race. That would be the, again, the, the Buddhas and Jesus, and Mohammed, and uh, more recent times, uh, Martin Luther King or Nelson Mandela, or to go backwards again, a Joan of Arc or a Abraham Lincoln. And even at that level, because 
we're not at the level of perfected human beings. The message was subject to misinterpretation and misinterpret it and distort it. We did, but we fumbled along as best we could. But in our modern era, since nuclear energy was invented and nuclear weaponry along with it, the masters have decided that they needed to come forward sooner. They always knew they would. It was a part of their own growth to be able to exhibit their work, their power in both worlds simultaneously. And so they're coming back to help us today so that we don't obliterate the planet, which would throw not only us off, but the whole solar system. And we didn't come this far to blow it now, so have hope. So with that... I think, let me just check my notes real quick. I think I've covered most of what we need to look at before you see the video, which is a real treat, and you'll know that if you were here two weeks ago. What I would like to also remind you of is that we have a phone number here for people that want to call in. After the show, or I should say, after the video, after the show, so that they can express their views, ask questions, and educate the audience in so doing. And that's our number, 888-627-6008. You know, that's hard to read backwards. And I'm going to repeat that when we're done with the video because we want you all to call in, if at all possible. And we'll talk more about what was covered in the video and what other questions it has provoked, both in the host, but more importantly, in the audience. And with that, let's roll the video. My name is Dick Larson, and welcome to the show. My guest today, my special guest, is Reverend McNair Ezzard. Reverend Ezzard is an ordained Methodist minister. He is also a healthcare administrator and a longtime student of the Ageless Wisdom teachings. And it's wonderful to have you here, McNair. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Dick. Um, for starters, would you share a little bit about your background and about how you came to be interested in death and dying? It's interesting because it seems like it's to me it's been a lifelong interest. Even um, when I was a child, I used to read about ghosts and hauntings and things like that. I think that was probably my first indication that I had an interest and sure. went off to college and I majored in film and television. I did a couple of films on death and dying, went to uh, seminary, did my thesis on hospice and death and dying and got involved in, in hospice after that. It's Maybe there's some unresolved issues around the prospect of death that I want to deal with, and this is my way. I don't know. But it's uh, it's certainly the ultimate question for all of us um, about what happens when we die and how our lives are 
shaped um, based on our fear or not fear of death. What is your experience of how our society views death? Well, unfortunately, I think we're a death-denying society. Death-denying? Death-denying. We've had a lot of advances over the last 30 years in how we care for the dying um, through such programs as hospice where people are enabled to die free of machinery um, and no pain. Um, but basically, we still deny that death exists. We can see it in the way that we keep people alive in nursing homes where quantity is much more important than quality and quality of life and in hospitals where we keep people attached to machines where if we would unattach those machines the people would die and mm -hmm. move on we see it in our advertisements on television the shows that people watch which emphasize youth um, very seldom do we see senior citizens advertising products on television it's all geared to youth and being alive and those sorts of things, we don't really take the time to think about death and what it means for our lives. So yeah, I would say we're definitely a death-denying society. Do you get the impression that most people think death is a bad thing then? If you're lying in pain and you've been suffering with cancer for months, mm -hmm. even maybe a year or so, then death may not look like such a bad thing. Right. But if you're young, 30s, 40s, 20s, 50s, and you feel like you've got your whole life ahead of you, um, death could be seen as bad. It, it just depends on the person, whether you, whether we would view it as, as good or bad. And every culture is different, too. Um, different religions view death differently. So it just, it's just a matter of the society and the people that make up that society. So death isn't necessarily viewed as bad, then? Not necessarily. Um, Do you think it's feared? I think it's feared. I think there's not only the fear of death, but there's also the fear of dying. You and I talked earlier before the show about um, we weren't, weren't necessarily afraid of death, but we're afraid of the process of dying, that we yes. didn't want to be in pain, that we didn't want to die too young. Um, that's, those, that kind of issue is totally different than the fear of death itself. With the fear of death, we fear loss of our identity, we fear judgment, say if we're um, deeply steeped in the Christian tradition, or t traditional teaching of heaven and hell, we fear judgment and that we're going to go to hell if we didn't live a good life, Right. Um, those sorts of things. Fear loss of our family and friends, loss of our identity, all these things are tied up with, our, with the fear of death. So there's a lot of fear in, around death. There can be, yeah. yeah. Most of it yeah. covered up that we're not even in touch with. Well... How did we get? How did we get there? How did we get to the point where society is so preoccupied with the fear of death? I don't know that they're, that they're so preoccupied with it, but we're so focused on this identity as this body or this job or this house or this relationship. We identify with the things of this world, mm -hmm. and we think that that's who we are. And that all this whole idea, and so we don't really even think about death. Or, but when we're confronted with it, we could see very easily that we have a fear of death. When we lose a friend, or right. we see a big calamity happen in the world, and it hits home with us, we could we could come face to face with our fear if we're open to it. But it's really basically through our conditioning. It may be societal conditioning, but more importantly, I think it's through religious conditioning 
that the church, especially in the West, the Christian church, has not taught us the truth about who we are. You know, we, we are all familiar with that teaching that we're sinners from the, the word go, that we're sinners, Original worms sin. in the dust, mm-hmm. you know, and that we have no chance of ever getting out of that. Right. That's just the status of things. But we're not. We're much more than that. And according to the Ageless Wisdom teachings, which I've studied for a number of years, we are really spiritual beings, divine beings, children of God, if you will, that are here for a purpose and are on a long journey. So it's basically the conditioning, the teachings that we've been confronted with from our youth until now and throughout the last 2,000 years has gotten us into this predicament of not really knowing what happens after death and not knowing who we are. Growing up in the Christian tradition myself, um, one of the things that I thought a lot about as a young person was the fear of death because I hadn't lived as well as I could, as rightly as I could, uh, and I was afraid to go to hell. Mm -hmm. Is there a hell? I don't think so. Not in the traditional way that we have of understanding hell. Hell is not a, a place under the earth where there's a devil and he stands there and, and you, there's fire you, and there's fire and you spend the rest of your time there after you die. So no, there's not a hell. Hell, you can have hell on earth. There's many people who experience hell right here on earth. And depending on our desires and our state of consciousness, that creates our own life. We each create our own life situation. And the strength of our desires and where those desires are focused can create a hell for us. And when we die and we go to a different level of consciousness or awareness on the other planes of existence, those desires and those things that we used to dwell on and focus on when we were in the body, they don't suddenly disappear. They go with us. So we can take the hell that we might create for ourselves here. We experience it on the other side when we leave the body. So there is a hell, but it's... It's of our own making, and it's on of, our, of our own state of awareness. Okay, so somebody who in their lifetime is <clears throat> uh, has low self-esteem and doesn't think much of themselves and is very critical of others and, and is pretty much a miserable, lonely person, are you saying that when they die, their hell is going to be that they're going to continue in that state of consciousness, that state of mind, that kind of thing? In a sense, yeah. Until we learn the truth about who we are, and until we manifest that truth in our day-to-day existence, till we learn that we're children of God and that we're here for a purpose and that love is what we're supposed to be learning and manifesting in our relationships, we die, but we come back again. So we'll learn the next time if we don't learn this time. So the concept of rebirth. Yeah. Yeah. That eventually we'll get it right and we'll manifest. Okay, if there's no hell, technically speaking, then what about heaven? Is there no heaven? Heaven is a state of awareness as well. And actually, there's two ways to look at heaven. There's heaven in the sense that it's a state of consciousness. Um, We can experience heaven on earth if we have enough love in our hearts Mm -hmm. and we manifest enough love in our relationships. We could experience heaven right here in in this time, in this body, as a person If humanity as a whole was manifesting enough love and we experienced a a civilization of peace and harmlessness and well-being, we could experience that sort of heaven right here on earth. But heaven is not a place where you go when you die and 
you knock on the pearly gates, and if you're lucky, St. Peter will turn the key and let you in, and if, if not, you go to the other place. That's not what heaven is about. But there's also a sense that heaven in the Bible, it's called the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is where we're all headed eventually through the reincarnational process as we become perfect by coming back over and over and over again and learning, and learning the lessons, lessons. Okay. we eventually enter that state where all those who have become perfect now live. The masters of wisdom, the great white brotherhood, the disciples of, of the Christ, um, the Christ himself, all these individuals who have gone ahead of us live in that state of brotherhood and that state of unity and love, where, which is also known as the kingdom of God, which is where we're headed eventually. So do we go there and hang out, or is there work to do there? There's lots of work to do. When you get into heaven, actually, you've got a lot more work to do than you do now when you don't experience it. So you don't float on a cloud and play a harp. You don't float on a cloud. <laughs> the idea, we come into, our souls come into incarnation, come into these bodies because it has a purpose. And that purpose is to serve the plan of God. As we evolve, we become more aware of what that plan is. We become more aware of our part in that plan. Yes. So as we become perfect and learn everything that schoolhouse earth has to teach us, right. we want to participate in that plan more, and we can take on more of that plan to ourselves and manifest our part in helping that plan to become a reality on the earth. So, so we come back even right. after we're perfect. So when we're done with the physical body and we become permanent spirit beings, then there are there's work to do in the spiritual world as well. There's work to saying. be done in the spiritual okay. realm, but there's also... We come back in another body, but we don't have to resolve all the bad things we've created for ourselves. We've mm -hmm. already done all that work and resolved, resolved our bad karma. So now we're just here to help humanity to put a hand down and lift our brothers and sisters up towards the light. So you we said, come back or we don't come back. It just depends on what our individual destiny might be. Okay, you said we resolve our individual karma. Mm -hmm. Is that salvation? Where does salvation fit into this? It is salvation. Salvation is a path that we step on. As we step on the spiritual way, the spiritual existence, and start to meditate, start to study, start to serve other people, mm -hmm. the way of salvation opens before us, and we move closer to our destiny, which is union with God towards a certain level of consciousness and awareness. So that is our salvation. Now, karma... As we come back into incarnation, like if I do something bad to you today, I have to pay for that. If I do something good to you today, I will reap the benefits of that. Law of cause and effect. Exactly. It says it in the Bible. Jesus says it in the Bible. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. As you sow, so shall you now, reap. Now, I might not reap the benefits or the bad karma next life, but right. I might reap the benefits or the bad karma three lives from now. Okay. And the, the purpose of that is so that we eventually learn to live in harmlessness with each other. And the law of karma teaches us that. Eventually, when you get hit your head against the wall enough, you know not to hit your head against the wall anymore, and you learn, and you grow, and you move on, and you learn, you learn new lessons. So nobody saves you, talking about salvation, except you. Exactly. It's all up to us. We can do it quickly or slowly. We have free will, but it's all up to us. Eventually, we're all going to the same place. Some of us will do it slower. People like the Christ have done it a lot quicker. People right. like the Buddha have done it a lot quicker than us. Right. So yeah, eventually we go, but we, we have free will to make it a slow process or a quick process. 
To get back just for a minute to the fear of death, um, which is where we started this conversation, how would you suggest that people deal with the fear of death? The best way to deal with it is not to wait, not to wait till you're on your deathbed, oh. not to wait until you're 90 years old and you haven't given it a thought your whole life, mm -hmm. but to turn towards it in your life in a manner of speaking. Face it, think about it, um, don't be afraid of it, but just if you know, get in touch with it within oneself about what death means. Learn who you are as a child of God. Start to read the great spiritual teachers, meditate, whatever it might take that you can get in touch with that inner divinity within yourself. Find out who you are and look at what other philosophers, philosophers and teachers have said about death. Read on these things and you become more familiar with it and the familiar doesn't hold the same sense of fear and trepidation because you become it's become more of a friend than an, than an enemy to you. So it sounds like you're saying get to know yourself, find some kind of inward path, whether it's mm -hmm. some kind of spiritual path or, or whatever it is, um, to get to know yourself, who you really are, that you're a spirit, not a, not a physical, not just a physical when body. You know, when you know who you are, you know that this world is transient. You know that your relationships are not permanent. You know that you're not your job or your house or mm -hmm. your car. All these things pass away. And you focus on what is permanent, which is that soul of yourself, that inner spark of God. That's what's permanent. And when you get in touch with that, the world can come and go or people can come and go. I mean, you may miss them because we're all human, but you know that nothing in this world lasts. And that the real part of us, whether we're in the body or out of the body, the real part of us lives on. So that's the number one call. Is get to know yourself, who you really are. Who you really are as right. a spirit, as right. a soul. Yes. Right. Then the other thing you said is get educated about what people have said about death, what, what knowledgeable people have written. I would assume that might include even reading um, books by people like Dr. Raymond Moody, who's talked about near-death experiences right. and talked to people who've actually died. Yep. People who've had those near-death experiences right. have come right. back. Um, there's lots of more and more books out all the time now of research into this whole prospect of reincarnation and that sort of thing. All these things, I mean, there's a a fellow professor at University of Virginia, Ian Stevenson, who's been doing research for years about where he goes to um, these countries, say India or Lebanon, and he interviews children who remember all these details about a previous existence. And he I can verify that. that because the people of that previous existence for that child are still there, and they can name their parents, they can name where they live, their brothers or sisters, all these sorts of things are that he has researched that these children talk about. So there's things like that that are going on and other scientific studies which are proving more and more that there's more to life than just this physical world that we see, yeah. that there is a consciousness within us that has a life outside of this body. And these sorts of things can help us get more familiar with the prospect of death and thereby lessen our fear of death. Very good. I also want to talk just for a moment about People who have suffered the loss of a loved one, um, they, they're going through grief and loss, the tragic, tragic losses sometimes. And I'm wondering what suggestion you might have for people 
about how to handle their grief, how to move through their grief, how to deal with that tremendous, tremendous grief and suffering of the loss yeah. of a loved one. Grief, grief is very hard for people. Yes. Um, we all have to go through it. If, we're not, if we don't die when we're young, then eventually our parents, our friends, old people older than us and younger than us are all, are all going to die. I mean, we're going to be in that role sometime, but grief affects us on such a deep level that it can never, it's always there, even after time has passed, a year or two after we've lost a loved one, for mm -hmm. instance. Mm -hmm. will never go away. That gap will always be there. That hole that we might feel within our lives will always be there. But we have to understand that it's part of the normal process to grieve. It's normal to cry. It's normal to want to talk about it all the time with our friends. We have to understand that people we know that are grieving need to be able to talk. They need permission to know it's okay to cry. Um, people don't get over grief in a week. You know, in our society right. we say, well, take a week off, you know, come back to work in a right. week, and people expect you to be over it, but you're not. You still carry this with you. Yes. People can get very depressed about it. I would say if you're grieving to make sure you have a support network somehow, a friend or two friends mm -hmm. or f other family members or whatever it might be, find a support group through something like a hospice or social service agency or through your church. Mm -hmm. People that are going through grief share with one another so that you know you're not alone in that experience. Mm -hmm. And just give yourself time. You can read books about what you're going through. The, there's common threads in grief common things that people experience, no matter what kind of grief it is. We all, they all have certain characteristics that we're all going to undergo. Yeah. And reading about them, hearing other people talk about them, will let us know that we're not crazy, you know, and that it's normal what we're experiencing. Does writing help? Sometimes writing a people goodbye love, letter or letter of regrets and thank those yous? Those things are things helpful. Like you know, it goes along that same line as journaling, doing a daily oh, journal, okay. in a, something like that. All... Whatever, whatever it might be that a person gravitates to, that's what they should do. The thing not to do is to drink, do drugs, mm -hmm. to run away from your grief. Alter your consciousness. To alter your consciousness. The thing to do is to turn and face it, be with it, not dwell on it, but if the waves of grief Experience come it. over you, just sit back, sit quietly, and just watch it happening in your life, you mm -hmm. know, but don't turn away from it. Don't run away from it because it'll come up in other ways further down the line, you know, yeah. either physical symptoms or in your relationships. People, the thing to do is to let it out. People don't want to experience it. They want to avoid the painful feelings, but it's my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, that, that experiencing it is the way to process through it and to finally come out the other end of it. It is, and people yeah. want to avoid people that are grieving, yeah. but to grieve and to go through it can also have an effect, as we were talking earlier, about on our own fear of death. You know, we can see all this process of life, of death, of grief, as a normal thing. It's, it's what it means to be human in this body, and we all have to go through it. And if reincarnation is to be believed, we've all gone through it thousands of times. We don't remember it, but we have. McNair, let's talk about the future. Let's talk about the future. How do you see... Do you, do you see our view of death changing in the future? Our fear of death going uh, away definitely. more? It's, people wouldn't believe what's going to happen over the next 50 to 100 years and how our whole view of death and dying is going to change. In the world right now are a great 
group, if you will, of spiritual teachers called the Masters of Wisdom. These are spiritual teachers who are coming into our world for the first time to live openly since time immemorial, if you mm. will. And at their head is one who's called Maitreya, the world teacher. And this group of teachers, spiritual teachers, will be living with humanity once they come out into the public arena. They will be living among humanity, teaching, guiding, and showing us how to manifest who we are as spiritual beings, teaching us who we are in the first place and showing us how to demonstrate that in our daily lives. And one of the things they will be showing us is that death is not real. Death is only an illusion that happens to this body, but when you know who you are and when you experience who you are, you know that death is only a doorway through which you're walking. And this will be demonstrated for us. And it will take away from humanity that age-old fear of death that we've had for so long. And that it will free us up to live life more abundantly. My first thought is, will I live long enough to see, to hear this teaching and to, to feel this sense of relief? Well, um, where are these teachers and when do they start teaching? Unless you're going out tonight, I think you probably will be. You look pretty <laughs> strong and healthy and youthful. Um, it's going to happen very soon. Um, we're told by British Arthur Benjamin Krim, who's the chief exponent of this story and has been for 20 years, that soon to emerge into the public arena will be the world teacher, Maitreya, and his group, the Masters. Prior to their coming out before the world, there will be certain changes in the world, one of which will be a major economic collapse, if you will, change, mm. so that the priorities of the world change. And instead of doing the things that we're doing now, spending all our money on armaments and guns and whatever it might be um, now, that our priorities will change. But for those priorities to change so that we're building houses for people and feeding people and giving people health care and education and clothing so that those become our concerns, the whole economic system has to change. Yeah, because money is God right now. Money is our God, exactly. Right. And there's nothing wrong with money in and of itself, but it's the use of it. Money can be a great spiritual tool, it can, actually. It can accomplish great things. Yes. But our whole focus on the material way of living has it. to change. Right. And an economic collapse is seen by the masters, by this group of spiritual teachers, mm -hmm. as really the only way to get us over that step so that we start to live life differently. So they're here now. They're here now. The economic collapse will happen. And then the world teacher will be invited to speak to the whole world through the link television and radios. By the, the media? World, by the media. There will be such a call from humanity that we need help okay. that he will be invited to come forward. He's living in the world now and has been for um, since 1977, ready to help humanity, ready to come forward at any moment, um, but hasn't because we haven't been ready for him. But very soon we're going to be ready because this change in our economy and our political system. So he's waiting for the change. timing to be right to have the greatest impact is what exactly. it sounds like. Exactly, exactly. So he's going to come forward and, what, speak to everybody? He will speak on that day, which will come to be known as the Day of Declaration. Mm -hmm. He will appear on television. People that have been, you know, alerted to this fact will turn on their TV and they'll see him on television. He, and he will, he will appear on television for 20 or 30 minutes. But the, the interesting thing about it is he won't speak, but yet we'll still hear him talking in our own minds, um, telepathically 
so that his words will be dropping silently into our minds. It'll be like he's having a conversation with us. Mm -hmm. You'll hear him in English. I'll hear him in English. Um, people in Holland will hear him in Dutch and France will hear him in French and so on around the world okay. in their own language. He will be telling us at that time who he is, why he's here, who we are, and that what our purpose is and what's going to happen with his presence in the world and the presence in the world of the masters. On that day, also at that time, his love will flow out through all, over all the earth through the hearts of all humanity. It will be as if he is embracing us in his arms, his love. On the day of Pentecost in the Bible, right. people were felt that tremendous uplift of God's love and yes. spoken tongues. Well, this will be a reenactment only on a world scale of the happenings of Pentecost. And the third thing hap that will happen on that day, in addition to the us hearing his voice and his love flowing love. through our hearts, mm -hmm. is there will be hundreds of thousands of simultaneous physical healings of people who are ill, as if so that those together, those three things will convince humanity that, hey, this is a pretty special fellow. We better listen to what he's saying. He's here to help. Let's let's let him talk some more, yeah. so we can move on yeah. and have a better world. I like the idea of the love in the heart. I like that a lot. That we will feel the love of God in our heart because people are worried about the Antichrist, and the Antichrist can't do that. No. So that would tell me that this is the real the real teacher. Well, the love is already in a stick. The love is already there. It's like he's opening the door okay. and letting it out. So I mean, his love connects with the love which is already within us. I would think that th that after that, our view of death would change significantly. You well, know? It will. Yeah. When we know who we are, we don't. there's no reason to fear because we know that we're immortal and that life goes on. Thank you, Reverend McNair Ezard. Thank enjoyed you so it. much for being with me. Thank you. Really enjoyed this conversation and your experience. Uh, lends a lot of wonderful information to the folks. Mm. And I hope that you, too, have enjoyed this visit. My name is Dick Larson. God bless. Well, that was an amazing piece, wasn't it? And I hope that you'll have plenty of questions so you won't leave me here to talk down the time till we run out of it. I wanted to touch upon some of the things that they had mentioned, both uh, Dick and McNair. And one of them was, I remember Dick asking McNair, you know, is there a hell? And McNair said, no, no, not really. And I can remember a Krishnamurti years ago saying that hell was the fruit of Christianity. And I know that Ben Krem, Benjamin Krem, who wrote so many books here in the modern era between the late 70s and 2015 or so, I think is when his last book came out, 2014, he talked, um, he talked about the subject. He touched upon that and had said that Pretty much the same thing. There is no hell. There is a purgatory, so to speak, but that everything in the universe is eventually, eventually uh, renewed. And that it may take millions of years, but eventually everyone's going to get, and everything is going to get purified. One of the other things I made note of, um, 
I talked about heaven, but only briefly. My understanding is, from my esoteric sources, is that there is sort of equivalent of the Christian idea of heaven in between lifetimes. The soul hangs out in bliss and everything's wonderful and eventually your number comes up and you're back again. And you only come back until you have perfected yourself till you're a perfected human being. And then you're a master of wisdom too. The earth school has nothing more to teach you and you don't have to return anymore. I'm just checking here to see if we got any callers in and I understand they're streaming the phone number across the screen. So we hope you'll take advantage of that and call in so I can listen to you talk instead of listening to myself talk. And what else did they mention? Oh, about seeing loved ones again, because, you know, that's really important to some people. It's really important to all people, probably, that you will, again, see your loved ones, especially when you're introduced to the concept that, well, you're not going away forever. You will be back. And you may think, well, what if they come back before I leave? Does that mean I'm going to miss them? And I think Ben's answer was along the lines of the fact that we all reincarnate in groups and that they will be back, you will be back, and yes, you will see them again, so fear not. Let me just check whatever, what other notes I had here. Also, also from the last time, if you remember, I, I think this bears repeating, Maitreya's quote where he said, May the fear of death die in the hearts of all men. And they had said that in the future, mankind would create machinery with which we'd actually be able to communicate with people that had crossed over on the other side of the veil, that had shifted consciousness, as we say in the Aegis Wisdom teaching. So imagine that. And the notion is as well that the veil between our two worlds is getting thinner and thinner. Okay, just to touch upon something else they said. Oh, yeah, McNair was talking about coping with the grief from the death of loved ones, not to run away from it, but to face it and to work through it. And the notion that sometimes, not just with the concept of death, but with the concept of a life in which you see so little opportunity, people will escape through drugs. Maitreya had called this spiritual starvation because they can see in their lives that their chosen life path, their dreams are thwarted. They may never have the money to have a proper house, clothing, health food, education, food, enough leisure time, and all the rest of it. And they can see that other people do have it. This is a travesty. And what we need is to provide the basic human needs for all human beings. And we have the resources to do that. It's just not being distributed to where it should be. These are the spiritual crises of today, as Benjamin Krem had outlined them. Not in religion, not in philosophy, but in social and economic issues. So having said that, let me return to some of their comments. Also, Dick had mentioned how some people, particularly conservative and fundamentalist Christians, are, can be very interested or even obsessed with the notion of the Antichrist. 
and our esoteric sources from the Aegis Wisdom Teaching tell us that the Antichrist is an energy, not a person, and it is deliberately released by hierarchy in preparation for a teacher, world teacher, and a Christ in any given era when they emerge, often, you know, in thousand or two thousand year uh, periods. So those in those groups who are concerned that perhaps the world teacher Maitreya is the Antichrist should bear in mind that he is the very antithesis of that. And of course, on the day of declaration, when he does a worldwide television broadcast and all can see him, that energy will be released and it will be clear to everyone just who he is. Let me see, what else did we touch upon here? While we wait for somebody to call in, I'm still looking to see if they will. I also mentioned having a sort of kind of maybe near-death experience myself. Not the dramatic kind that you hear of where people see see themselves walking into the light and um, experience a version of of heaven and they don't want to come back. Um, I was sort of on the edge and I asked to come back because... I felt that I hadn't accomplished enough in life, that this would devastate my parents, that too many people had already died this way and it was redundant and meaningless, and that my apartment was a mess and would take my family and friends forever to clean it up. So I asked if I could come back. And as I understand it, I was in an induced coma. They were having trouble reviving me successfully. And after that night, the night that I decided that I really did want to survive, they were able to revive me. And I woke up that morning and the first thing, first thought that popped into my head was from a Christmas carol. If you remember this line, the spirits have done it all in one night. And then they guess they took me off to take a bath or something. And, um, and that was, that was the beginning of the, of the recovery. So, a lot of people have had these experiences and a lot of people sometimes are are not willing to discuss them for fear of being ostracized. But we know from our own ancient knowledge and memories that this is not the end of our existence when we die here. It's simply the shifting of consciousness, as we say in the Aegis Wisdom teaching, the body which is merely a vehicle, wears out, but the consciousness continues. They say that there's three permanent atoms that survive the death of the physical body. I think one is for the physical record, one for the mental, one for the emotional, and that's carried over into the next lifetime. Now, you know, we've all heard people who say, I don't believe in reincarnation, and this life was Well, it wasn't completely awful, but the world's in terrible shape and I am not coming back here again. Well, that's the personality talking. And when we talk that way, our soul is not even listening because it has a much broader view. And besides, when you come back, it's going to be a completely different movie. It's not going to be like this, especially in the coming decades with the emergence on the physical plane, dense physical plane of the masters of wisdom who will work openly with humanity and help us create a wonderful civilization based on trust, 
and sharing of the world's resources equitably, synthesis, love, justice and equality at last for everyone, finally, and healthcare, housing, education, proper food, and all the rest of it. This is something that is long overdue and something that could have been done long ago, but apparently mankind wasn't ready. And also bear in mind when we're talking about death and rebirth, that this is not the first time this subject has come up and it has been sort of hidden behind the scenes in plain view. Think of Christianity, for example. I came from a Christian background, was raised Catholic. Now I consider myself non-denominational. But there were some mentions in the Bible of it. Now, Emperor Justinian had most of them removed, as we understand it, in part because he wanted everybody on the same page and also because this may have been an unspoken truth that it's harder to control your subjects when they think they can have multiple lifetimes. It's easier to control them if they think life is a one-shot deal. But a few of those mentionings of reincarnation in the Bible were overlooked. For instance, let me think, what was that? When the disciples asked Jesus, who is John the Baptist? Was he here before? Was he Elijah or something like that? And Jesus said, yes. Or the story of the blind man, when they asked, again, the disciples asked Jesus, did he sin or did his parents sin? Now, asking if he had sinned doesn't make any sense without reincarnation because he'd been blind since birth. Meaning, was there something he did before this lifetime that led to this blindness? But this has been glossed over by the church. And so in our world today, In the East, it's accepted, but misunderstood in part. And in the West, it's not even thought about, and it's not particularly accepted and certainly not understood. But let's return to the East for a moment with the idea that perhaps in some cultures that when people are born in poverty, it was because of something they did in a previous life, which, of course, is nonsense, the whole caste system and all the rest of it which also belongs on the dustbin of history where soon it will be relegated. Here in the West, we don't seem to grasp it much at all. If you bring it up, people say, a lot of people say, you believe in that? You believe in reincarnation? And it's almost as if people want to get a grasp of it, but haven't the background. And what you can do is provide that for people. You can provide the context and the hope so that people know that there is life beyond life. And my wish has been granted at last. We have two callers. So why don't we take Silito first from Seattle? Silito on line four. Hello, Silito. Hey, David. How are you? I'm great. And yourself? Doing all right. Great topic. Thank Talking you. about death and reincarnation. Um, I came in late. Um, did uh, Was there any discussion about, uh, you know, young, these young child geniuses who, who are like at three years old? They're so accomplished. Um, I've always thought that that's because 
they were uh, mastering their uh, craft, whatever that is, painting or music, uh, in the prior life. Uh, yes. Was there discussion yes, indeed. about that? And I did neglect to mention that. And thank you so much, Silito, for bringing that up. I know that McNair and Dick did not touch upon child geniuses. They did talk about children with memories. But I know that Benjamin Krem had, I believe it was him who talked about Mozart and said that he was a well-known and accomplished musician in several lifetimes prior to being Mozart, which is why he was writing sonatas at age 10 or 12. So yes, that's a very valid subject. People will say, oh, he's really gifted. And in my, in my take on it, I say, he's not gifted. He worked really hard for that in several mm-hmm. pre- previous incarnations. Um, did you have a particular example that you were fond of that you wanted to mention, Silito? Oh, there's just so many amazing, I mean, with the internet now and YouTube, you, you see these very, very young children um, in front of huge audiences uh, performing so remarkably. And uh, you just wonder, how, how does that happen? I mean, so many, so many young people. So, um, and I appreciate what you're saying. I, what occurred to me, I was talking to my cousin yesterday. He lives in a very old house, and he mm-hmm. suspects there's a ghost. Well, he knows there's a ghost in this house. And I told him, well, why don't you introduce yourself to, to the ghost? <laughs> um, <laughs> and he didn't know what to make of that. I thought it was perfectly rational. You know, let, let, let the ghost know, they're, you know, they, they, they got friends. But um, any uh, any esoteric perspective on on what a ghost is and why a ghost exists? Well, I can comment on that briefly. You've got one of her caller, and I've got two minutes, so I won't have much uh, time. But I have heard before that they're entities that are sort of trapped between worlds. They they don't know that they're dead. Um, they're mad that they're dead. Um, they, they don't want to let go. And I've been in haunted houses before, and it's definitely creeped me out. I've been warned in advance, usually. No, every time I was warned in advance. Um, but I did, I did not take that advice. But next time, Silito, if it ever happens again, I will take your advice. Thank you very much. Thank you for calling <laughs> in. And Sue from Sacramento. Yes, I nope. really enjoy his show. And... Uh, McNair's comments, and uh, I think he has a lot of wisdom. What I'm interested in is what age were you when you had that near-death experience, and how has it been for you these years uh, since? Okay, and I will I will answer this quickly, too, because I've only got a minute left. And um, that, I was age 39, so that was um, 22 going on 23 years ago. And it was a wake-up call, made me sit up and take notice and, you know, clean up my act and get more focused with life. And there were three uh, things that came to me um, when I woke up. Um, One of them was, number one, none of us is is alone. If you think you are, you're delusional. Number two, you're more powerful than you can possibly imagine. And number three, we're all loved beyond our capacity to comprehend. So it was a wake-up call and a kick in the pants, and it, I think it made my life for the better, improved it going forward. 
So thank you, mm. Sue, for that question. Thank and you. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I've only got about 20 seconds left or less. So I want to thank everyone for calling in. Thank all of you for listening. And I hope you'll all explore this topic further and share it with your friends, your families, and your associates. So as Maitreya said, may the fear of death die in the hearts of all men. And thank you all very much. Tune in right here in two weeks for the next Planetary Makeover Show as we watch and discuss another video by Francis Oman in light of the timely and non-denominational ageless wisdom teachings that will fill your spirit and inspire you with hope for the future, a world that works for everyone. So be prepared to call in and share your views and questions in another uplifting episode of Planetary Makeover. Makeover.